Good morning. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15 as we continue our study of this book. If you're visiting with us, we especially welcome you. Thankful that you're here. And we invite you to be with us every opportunity that you have. What we've been doing for the last several weeks is basically been walking through the book of Revelation, taking a couple of chapters at a time and just kind of giving a, a general overview of the book's content and not going into great detail, not doing something like we would do in a Bible class setting, so to speak, but maybe just hitting some of the high points of some of the imagery and what it means and how it applies and what the whole purpose of this book is about, not only for those in the first century, but also for us today who are uh, 2,000 years roughly removed uh, from the audience that this book was written to. And so basically what we have is chapters 15 and 16 under discussion this morning. Uh, if you are like me, when you were a kid, you were a big wrestling fan. It may be that you're still a wrestling fan today. I don't know. Uh, but it may be that you were a wrestling fan when you were a kid. And one of the things that even if you weren't a wrestling fan or a boxing fan would, uh, would uh, pertain to this too, even if you were not a wrestling fan or a boxing fan, I think you're pretty much aware of a concept that happens in both of those sports. When a person gets knocked down, there is a countdown. Let's say you've got a boxer. Two boxers are going at it in the ring. One gets punched and he falls down. Well, the referee stands over that boxer and he begins to count down from 10 and that boxer basically has 10 seconds to get back up to continue fighting. If he does not get up after the 10 seconds, then the countdown is over and the match is over. It's kind of similar with wrestling, even though there's a cover-up and there's only a count to three and it may be a little bit more fake than boxing is. But... The countdown is something that we understand. In chapters 15 and 16, we have what I like to call the final countdown when it comes to the book of Revelation. And if you look at verses, verse 1 of chapter 15, you'll understand a little bit about what I'm talking about. It says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last for with them the wrath of God is finished. When these seven bowls of wrath are poured out, or these seven plagues are poured out, this is going to be the final countdown, so to speak, of the demise of the earth dwellers. It's going to be done. It's going to be finished. Everything is going to be over with. No more trouble for God's people. Only comfort to look forward to in the future. Only eternity in the future. But what do we make of this? Because if we have this final countdown, well, you've got also other parts in Revelation that describe the demise of God's enemies as well. You've got uh, these people that they, the things that they go after, the things that they give their lives to, it cannot suffice. God is always going to win. His people is always going to win. That's the message all throughout the book. And so what do we make of this? Does it mean that all of those other chapters that we've looked at that describe the demise of the earth dwellers, does it mean that those were somehow insufficient in some way? And this is kind of the final blow and this is the one that says, hey, it is finished. The other ones were just a part of it, but this is finished. What do we make of this? 
Well, what we have here is what I believe to be an occasion of what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 17 with something being finalized on the basis of two or three witnesses. And let me share with you what I mean by this. We began by looking at the series of seven with the seven seals being opened. As the seven seals of the book that we read about in chapter 6 begin to be opened, then we've also got God's wrath being poured out on the enemies of God's people. And it was only the Lamb, only the Lion of the tribe of Judah that had the authority to open those seven seals and administer that wrath of God on the earth dwellers and provide comfort for God's people. And so that was the first series of seven. We come later on in the book to another series of seven, the seven trumpets being blown. The seven trumpets basically had the same focus as the seven seals did. These are, this is wrath that's being administered up on the earth dwellers and also providing comfort for God's people. And here we have the final series of seven. The seven bowls of wrath being poured out upon these earth dwellers, once again, providing the comfort that God's people need and so desperately are looking forward to. And with this final seven, this final series of seven, it's done. It's finished. It's over. But we've got those, those three series of seven, the seven Seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls of wrath. But in chapter 12, we also find something interesting. You may remember from our discussion on chapter 12 that you had this great dragon or this serpent that was waiting at the woman who was pregnant for, this, for the birth of this male child who is obviously Jesus. And when this child is born, then the dragon is going to devour this child. But the dragon doesn't devour the child. The child is caught up away from the dragon, protected from the dragon. And by him being caught up from the dragon, he actually defeats the dragon. As we continue reading in that chapter, you've got the battle between the angels of the dragon and the archangel Michael and his army. And there is really no battle that takes place, but the devil's demise is seen again in that chapter. In the third place, we, after, the, the, after the dragon is defeated those two times, he starts to make his way on God's people and make life difficult for God's people. But the Bible tells us that through the faith of those faithful people of God, the dragon is defeated there as well. Three times in Revelation chapter 12, we have this dragon defeated. And then in chapter 13, we have the number 666, which is perhaps the most controversial number in the entire Bible, not just Revelation, but the entire Bible. But I don't think it's as complicated as we've made it out to be. Because I think what it symbolizes is you've got these three Uh, this, This first beast, the false prophet, and then the dragon that we read about in chapter 12. All three of those try to exert their influence, try to exert their dominance on God's people and win the victory over God and His people. But because six is one less than seven, John's favorite number for Revelation, all three of them fail in obtaining the power that they seek. 
And so we've got the failure of the dragon, the failure of the first beast, the failure of the false prophet. Once again, hey, you've got failure or you've got God winning three times there too. And so the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls of wrath, the dragon being defeated three times in chapter 12, the insufficiency of the beast, the dragon, and the false prophet, and the, uh, the symbolizing the number 666, over and over and over again, we find God's enemies, the, or the enemies of God's people being defeated. It may symbolize one of those two or three witness type things that we find in the Old Testament. And it fits with what Revelation does with the Old Testament. But at the end of the day, it's finished. It's done. Satan cannot win. The earth dwellers cannot win. God always does. And as we continue reading in chapter 15, in verse 2, we see that even though in verse 8, it says the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Even though this way is still closed, it, we, they cannot enter it yet, it's talked about as if it has already happened when you begin reading in verse 12. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Even though... The victory is not given to these people until after the seven bowls of wrath have been poured out. It's spoken of as if it has already happened. As if they have already received it. Because with these, the wrath of God is finished. The victory of God's people as well is complete. And so what about these seven trumpets? As I mentioned earlier, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls of wrath, they are all three basically communicating the same idea. And so there are some things in these seven bowls of wrath that are going to be described that we're familiar with, that we've seen before. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time explaining what that's about, but just kind of calling attention to some things that have already been described that makes this final countdown, if you will, relevant for God's people and the comfort that they are to receive. And so when you look at this final countdown, I want you to think first of all, when the seven bowls of wrath are poured out, the first bowl is poured out that describes evil's promises that are negated. In chapter 16, verse 2, it says, The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. 
This may remind you of the the Egyptian plague, the plague of the boils that came upon uh, all of the people of Egypt. Remember, none of God's people received those plagues. It was only on those who were in Egypt. But they cried out in pain and they they wanted to get rid of these boils. But it was because of the, the Pharaoh and his pride and all of that that led to this to begin with. But this is very similar to the plague that we read about in Egypt. We may also have overtones of uh, the book of Job in our minds. As Job was uh, in this pain with these boils, it wasn't because of his sin or his rejection of God, but kind of the pain is kind of what we think about there with what Job had to go through. But this is on those who have promised protection. They've promised assurance. They've promised people so much, but they've only promised something that they have no power to give. Back in chapter 13, with this false prophet, remember what he described. Remember what he promised. It says, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or its number or the number of its name. And so if you want to buy and sell at the meat market, if you want to go get the things that your family and that you need to survive, well, you've got to give your allegiance to this beast. You've got to have the mark of the beast on your hand or on your forehead. That is going to symbolize protection for you. He's going to take care of you. He's going to make sure that you have everything that you need. But when we read this first bowl of wrath being poured out, these painful sores came up on the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. This beast is offering something that he cannot promise. Satan tries to promise us a lot of things. He may try to promise us a life of luxury. He may try to promise us a life of comfort. He may try to promise us a life where everything is going to be better if we will just bow down and worship Him. But it's a promise that's negated by the goodness and the loving mercy of God. God is the only one that can promise anything of any value. Satan can't promise anything. I'm also reminded of Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. And that third temptation, the, uh, the Satan told Jesus, he said, all these, took him to the top of the pinnacle of the temple and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and said, all of these I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. I love the way Jesus responds. You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. Why did Jesus say that? Not just because He was trying to overcome temptation, but He knew that Satan didn't really have anything to offer. That the only one that can offer anything of any worth, of any value, is God Almighty. And this first bowl of wrath symbolizes that very idea. Those who have given allegiance to the beast are only going to be seen the insufficiency of what that beast can offer and the greatness of what God can offer. And that will come into play in a big way later on as we continue going through this. But evil's promises are negated in the first bowl of wrath. In the second bowl of wrath, we have what is necessary to thrive being judged. 
In verse 3 it says, The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. This may remind you of the Egyptian plague where the water was turned to blood. There are two different ways we can read that plague or two different things we find when we are reading that plague. You've got the Nile River. And I think that's what's being kind of symbolized here, at least in, in context or in, um, in principle, because the Nile was everything to the Egyptians. How were they able to thrive and, and be the civilization that they were for so many years? It was because of the Nile River. The Nile River had everything that they needed as far as fish were concerned. You would import basically whatever you needed from anywhere uh, through the Nile River. You would get those shellfish to make dye and different things from the Nile River. The papyrus plant grew right next to the Nile River, which will eventually get where we get paper, come, come paper. And paper will eventually lead to the prestige of Alexandria and that great, uh, that great library that existed for so long. But it was all a result of the Nile River. Well, the Mediterranean Sea was that for the Romans. Without the Mediterranean Sea, the Romans cannot thrive as a civilization. Without the Mediterranean Sea, they can't fish. They can't get those shellfish that produces that great royal dye from the murex shell. They can't get anything that they need without the Mediterranean Sea. They're basically just a spot on the map without this sea. But as this second bowl of wrath is poured out, Notice what happens to the sea. It became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. What happens to blood when a person dies? It stops flowing. And so the Mediterranean Sea is not flowing anymore. It's not providing anything for anybody. It's not useful. And so... This great empire, this great kingdom, this great civilization can't be great anymore when this bowl of wrath is poured out. I can't help but read this and think about Amazon. Where would we be if somebody destroyed Amazon? I probably wouldn't have got a single thing for Christmas. But we live and we thrive off of Amazon. And you can plug that plug in whatever you think is necessary for life or whatever you use uh, to make your life the way that it is today. But that's what the Mediterranean Sea was for, the, for the, the Romans in this time. But God is describing that these things that are necessary for you to thrive, I have power and control even over those things. And so what they have to hold dear to them is not going to be dear very much longer. And this kind of uh, is related to the very next thing, what's necessary to survive. This is where we go from the salt water of the Mediterranean Sea to the fresh water of the springs and things. And you've also got this in the Egyptian plagues. It wasn't just the Nile River that was affected. It was all of the springs. It was all of the fresh water that the people drank in the, in, in the uh, Egyptian empire. All of that stuff was affected too. In, um, in verse 4, it says, The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought brought these judgments for they have shed the blood of the saints and you have given them blood to drink 
it is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, heard, uh, and I heard the altar saying, "Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments." I like how both the angel that's pouring out this bowl of wrath, and from the altar we find saying, "Look, they are, they are getting what they deserve." Because they gave people blood to drink, they are getting blood to drink. This is an image that may come from Isaiah chapter 34 and verse 7 where the nations are being judged by God. He's describing how they are going to drink the blood basically of God's wrath when that happens. And so this image fits well with that image in the Old Testament. Other places in the Old Testament describe drinking blood as an image for judgment as well. But it's because of what these people have done. They are getting what they deserve. And I like how it's not just the angel, but it's the altar. Because what do we know about the altar? Well, if you go back to Revelation chapter 6, and you begin in verse 10, you've got the souls, or begin in verse 9, so we can see this full context come into play. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And then you come to chapter 8, or chapter 8, excuse me, with the seventh seal being opened. And when the seventh seal is opened, another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And so with the seven plagues, we have these angels crying out, How long before our blood is avenged? They've shed our blood, our innocent blood. How long do we have to wait before they get what's coming to them? And this third bowl of wrath is poured out. They get what they deserve. And so the angel glorifies God as a result of it. The souls under the altar glorify God as a result of it because their blood has finally been vindicated. And so... What's necessary to survive? Well, you've got to have a fresh water source. But this has turned into blood too. And so there is no way to survive in this civilization. What was once the greatest civilization anybody has ever known is all of a sudden becoming nothing because they have not given their glory and their allegiance to God. As the fifth bowl is poured out, we learn that God controls both blessings and curses. Or the <clears throat> fourth bowl, excuse me. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. This may remind you of the plague of darkness. 
the, the, the fifth plague is really going to remind you of that because it says its kingdom was plunged into darkness. But I'm kind of reminded of it here too because it reminds me of times where God affects the sun. And I think about the darkness that was over all the land of Egypt. Those people of Israel in the land of Goshen, they had all the light they needed. But the people in the land of Egypt had total darkness. But I'm also reminded of Joshua chapter 10 where you have these five kings form an alliance together to go against Israel and the Gibeonites. And what does God do on that occasion? That's the day that we know of where the sun stood still. For an entire day, God did not allow the sun to move. He stayed it where it was so that the people had all the light they needed to defeat every one of those enemies that had aligned themselves against them. And so God even controls the sun. But here, this bowl was poured out on the sun, and it's allowed to scorch people with fire. You know, the sun can be both a blessing and a curse. I love it when, in the summertime, when you get to go to the beach, and you get to sit on the beach, you get to, to sit in that sun and watch the waves and all that. And it's wonderful, but what happens when you go to sleep, and you wake up, and you're red as a lobster, that sun has all of a sudden scorched you. It's not a blessing anymore. Now the sun has become a curse. Well, these people love the sun, but what has it done? After pouring this bowl of wrath on it, it starts to scorch these people with fire. In verse 9, they were scorched by the fierce heat. Not necessarily the fire scorched them, but the heat scorched them. And they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. So God controls even the blessings and the curses. As we move on to the fifth angel, we learn that insufficient, the, the insufficiency of worldly leadership is in view. Verse 12, or excuse me, verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. I have the worldly leadership up here because it says its kingdom was plunged into darkness. It seems that when you read about the fourth angel, you've got the kingdom subjects being affected, but here the kingdom itself or the kings of those thrones being affected, they are plunged into darkness. It's the insufficiency of worldly leadership. Leadership is nothing without its followers. And as I was reading this, I couldn't help but think of people like David Koresh, people like Jim Jones that claimed to be some kind of messianic figure and created this big group of following of people. And when, one of the things that you notice in both of those people and the nature of their leadership is they would not allow any of their followers to make any decisions for themselves. It wouldn't allow them to go off on their own. They wouldn't allow them to make any decisions. Nothing. Jim Jones even took it a step further and took them to a totally different island away from all civilization. Why did he do that? Because he knew he was nothing without his followers. He knew that without followers he had no influence at all. He knew that there was nothing he could do as far as power was concerned without people to lead. 
But notice that they all failed. And these leaders here failed. Why did they fail? Because they trusted in themselves rather than trusting in the one that allowed them to have that leadership, and that was the God Almighty. Chapter 13, remember, these beasts, these beasts was allowed to exercise authority. It was allowed to do the things that it did. God allowed it, but it was only meant to point them towards Him, and they missed it. They ignored it. As we move on, we learn that evil aligns for defeat. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and it was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. We've been introduced to the Euphrates River already in chapter 9. The Euphrates River was the, uh, was the, the, the river that set the most extensive boundary between the territory of God's people and other kingdoms or other enemies. It was also the territory where the Parthians, they had to cross the Euphrates River to get to the Romans, and the Parthians were the Romans' greatest threat during this time. And so either one of those could be described here. I think what's going on here is that you've got the Euphrates River being dried up because they can cross it easily. They can cross it easily to get to the Romans and to get to, get to this civilization where they think that they're, uh, that, uh, that, that they're thriving. They think that they're safe. But the Euphrates River being dried up only serves to show them that they are not the ones in control, that God is the one who is in control. And isn't this what God does with drying up waters in the Old Testament? I think of three specific occasions. In Exodus chapter 14, God dried up the waters of the Red Sea so that the people of Israel could cross on dry ground and not be hurt by the Egyptians who were pressing in on them. I think about Joshua chapter 2 where uh, God parted the Jordan River so that the people of Israel could cross over into the land of Canaan on dry ground. I also think about 2 Kings chapter 2, not one that we think about a whole lot, but you've got the transition from Elijah's uh, leadership to Elisha's leadership. Elisha followed Elijah to the Jordan River, and Elijah took off his cloak. He smacked the Jordan River with his cloak, and the waters parted, and they both crossed on dry ground. And this is where Elijah was caught up to heaven in that fiery chariot. Elisha got to see all of that and it marked the transition between Elijah's ministry and Elisha's ministry. But God dries up waters, significant waters, to bless His people. But they're only aligning for defeat. In verse 13, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. This may remind you of Exodus chapter 8 and the plague of the frogs, which I think is what's supposed to be done here, what's supposed to be calling our attention to. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the Almighty. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And so you've got this group of people assembled. They are assembled against God. They're supposed to fight this big battle. The only problem is a lot of people have made a lot out of this battle at Armageddon. The problem is when you read verses 16 and 17, no battle takes place. Because the victory of righteousness is seen totally. 
They assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Nobody has wielded a weapon. Nobody has raised a hand. Nothing has happened. It's just, it's done. Righteousness uh, is victorious. So there's no battle that actually takes place. God wins every time. And so you see the relationship between the seventh plague and the very first verse that we read about that we read in verse 15 seven angels with seven plagues which are the last for with them the wrath of God is finished the seventh angel poured out his bow into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying it is done chapters 15 and 16 are sandwiched between this idea of it's done it's finished it's no more God has won. Righteousness has won. But one of the things in this chapter, in these two chapters that we need to call attention to that I haven't done yet, that I haven't called attention to yet, is the reason why God pours out all of these bowls of wrath. In verse 9 of chapter 16, the Bible says, They did not repent and give Him glory. In verse 10, They did not repent of their deeds. In verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen. Why is God pouring out these seven bowls of wrath? Is it just to say, hey, I'm in control and you're not? It's to get these people to realize that so that they will change their lives, repent, and He can save them. When it comes to salvation, a lot of times what we think about is what we need to do in order to be saved. And I don't want to negate that at all. Because we do. We have to confess. We have to have to obey the gospel by being baptized for the remission of our sins. Those are things that we must do in order to be members of the Lord's church and have God save us. But none of those things are possible unless God acted first. And it's because of His grace, His mercy, that we even get the opportunity to change our lives and it means something significant for us so I want to leave you with that thought tonight, uh, this morning. That there are things we need to do to respond to the gospel, to respond to God. But I want us to be motivated to do that, not because there are things in my life that I need to change, but because there are things that God did that demonstrates His grace and His mercy in a way that I'll never be able to explain. I'll never be able to understand. But that is the foundation for is an obedient child of God. It all begins and ends with His grace. Do you need God's grace this morning? It may be that you are here this morning and you do need God's grace. It may be that you need God's grace because you have obeyed the gospel, but you haven't been living your life the way that you need to.
And there are some things that you need to change as a Christian to make yourself a little bit more faithful in the sight of God. Man, the opportunity to repent a second time and ask for forgiveness, that's an act of God's grace as well. But it may be that you're here this morning and you've never obeyed the gospel. Won't you consider doing that this morning? Won't you consider responding to God's grace? God responded to us in the most beautiful way possible. He sent His one and only Son, Jesus, to this earth to die for the remission of our sins. In that act is God's grace. We get the opportunity to have that blood and that Savior to cleanse us from our sins when we obey. Do you need to do that this morning? If there's any reason that you feel you need to respond to the invitation, please do it now as we stand and sing.